Greetings, my good people. How are we? What is happening? What is going on? Hope you enjoyed your 4th of July weekend, but now another week has commenced, and here to deliver all the latest sports chatter on a silver platter is none other than yours truly here on the J Reels Podcast, as this is your host, J Reels. If this is your first time tuning in, welcome aboard. Thank you so much for downloading and listening to this content as I cover the whole sports landscape, and hopefully you'll be back for many, many more from here on out. And for those who have been banging with me from episode 1 to now 79, I welcome you guys back here on a Monday, July the 8th in the year of our Lord, 2019. Here's what I have on tap. Later in the podcast, I'll have Gerald Brown of Sirius XM NBA Radio on the Bottom Line Sports Show. We'll handicap everything that's happening with the NBA free agency offseason. Now, mind you, I did record this Wednesday, so I didn't get his take on the whole Kawhi Leonard, Paul George to the Clippers. You'll get my take on that, of course, in a few minutes. But we touch on the moves that Brooklyn made the impact of what it had for the Knicks and the Knicks fans that don't need to go crazy because they didn't get Kyrie and KD. Also, his top or his favorite free agent signing as well as his head-scratching free agent signing. We talk about all that, but that will be later on the podcast as you'll uh, get his take on everything that's happened so far in this first week plus of NBA free agency. We'll also touch on Coco Goff and her rise through Wimbledon here, but it did come to an unfortunate ending as she lost to former number one Simona Halep just a short time ago. But we'll see what that may mean, not only for tennis as a whole, but for U.S. tennis. You'll get my take on that. The Major League Baseball season has now come to the All-Star break. We'll touch in on what happened with the Mets and Yankees, of course, and also what teams may be jockeying for position as we're now three weeks away from the trade deadline. I'll get into everything that's happened with the NHL free agency. The Rangers finally get their man. Over the Islanders, of course, so what will the Islanders do? That remains to be seen. We'll also foray into that. But we'll launch this podcast up into the NBA stratosphere yet again because the player empowerment has certainly taken another twist here in 2019. But ironically, today is the nine-year anniversary of the decision. LeBron James, Boys and Girls Club, somewhere in Connecticut, taking his talents to South Beach. We could hearken all the way back then to when that was broadcast on ESPN, Jim Gray, and the uproar and everything that transpired after that as pretty much the advent of the player empowerment movement. When you fast forward eight years later, when Rich Paul, Clutch Sports, and Anthony Davis, when they came out and said, Anthony Davis wants to go to a contender, we understand he has a year and a half left on his contract, but we want to dictate where he's going to go and we're putting this statement out there. Me included, I wasn't an uproar, but I certainly disagreed with that tact. I thought it was going to backfire. It almost did, considering with the Lakers looking to make that trade during the season or right around the All-Star break of last year. But as we well know, that trade certainly was consummated, and we know the players and the parts and the draft picks and everything that had taken place at that time to where AD is now a member of of the Los Angeles Lakers. But funny enough, on the way to Anthony Davis becoming an LA Laker, it actually had to be put on pause for a moment because of the decision of a one Kawhi Leonard. Now Kawhi Leonard and his representation had reached out to the Lakers to say, can we just put it on hold till possibly Sunday? And as we all know that a lot of these moves that have been made going back to probably seems like the end of June, forget about the free agency period, which started last Sunday at 6 p.m. 
But when you look at the whole landscape and you look at what took place between last week and just on Saturday, and when you say to yourself, it's like, okay, we all wanted to know where Kawhi was going to go. A lot of people thought he was going to actually end up with the Lakers. And how I thought that would have been bad for the league, it would have been bad for the sport, because now you have the super team again, you're going to have a situation where the Lakers are going to be favored, and I understand they haven't made the postseason in six years, but at the same time, I'm sick and tired of seeing the Lakers. And I'm sure a lot of people are, despite the fact they haven't won a title in nine years. But now with Kawhi Leonard putting pause to the Lakers situation of announcing or officially announcing the Anthony Davis deal, what he had, and also Jerry West, the vice president of player operations for the Los Angeles Clippers, had up his sleeve, was another ace. And that ace was in Oklahoma City, where the Clippers pulled off a blockbuster deal by sending a million draft picks, a treasure chest. I mean, when you really look at this, and I understand this is a move that's built for today and for the next four years, but when you look at the amount of draft choices that were sent to L.A., whether it's the 2022, 2024, 2026 first-round picks that are unprotected. You have the 2021. Let me see if I got I got to make sure I got this straight. The 2021 pick is unprotected. The 2023 pick is protected. And then they could swap 23 and 25 where the odd number years unprotected in 21, protected in 23, and you could swap 23 and 25, and then OKC will also get their 22, 24, and 26 first round picks, which I'm sure, as of right now, they're unprotected because that's not for another three years. What that did to the whole player empowerment, as I like to say, it just took it to another level. Because there was no way that Kawhi Leonard was going to go to L.A. if Paul George wasn't going to escort him on the way from Toronto through OKC. And if that trade wasn't consummated, did that mean Kawhi Leonard was going to sign with the Lakers? Because let's just say if Jerry West wasn't going to be able to pull the trigger and send a boatload of draft picks over to the Thunder, did that mean Kawhi was going to say, all right, well... The reason why I had this deal on hold is because I wanted to make sure that Paul George was going to come with me to play cross town or pretty much in the same building as LeBron James, Anthony Davis, and all the other players that have been signed, which I'll get to in a minute, by the Los Angeles Lakers. This was a very shrewd move. This was a move that the Clippers absolutely had to make. And it's interesting when you look at it from a standpoint of both coasts, how Brooklyn and the Knicks were impacted by this free agency period, as well as the Lakers and Clippers. As we chronicled last week, a lot of people thought it was going to be Kyrie and KD to the Garden. Instead, they're across the river at the Barclays Center, where the Knicks right now are had their tail between their legs, wondering what's going to happen next, who they're going to sign. And they signed a bunch of players, short contracts, which is good, two years. I understand Julius Randle got the three, but you're not hamstrung by any of these let's face it B-level players on long-term deals and then when you look at the Lakers situation well just to wrap up the Brooklyn situation so even with Kevin Durant 
not being in the mix next year, and Kyrie, of course, full throttle come the start of training camp, they knew the Nets were a playoff team last year, and if they were going to take a next step, and not only just for their city, but in the conference, they had to put their money where their mouths were, and they certainly did by bringing in Kevin Durant despite the fact he's going to sit out this year with his Achilles injury. Now, as we travel out west, when the Lakers made the move for Anthony Davis, and then you also got to throw in the fact that they've signed a bunch of other, again, B-level type players. They bring back KCP, Contavious Caldwell-Pope. They also bring back Rondo on a two-year deal. They also signed DeMarcus Cousins on a one-year deal. Jared Dudley, Danny Green. When all these guys are coming into the mix and the Clippers have done nothing this offseason, they for sure had to pretty much push all their chips to the middle of the table to bring back not just one, but two players that can make an impact again, not only in their town, in their building, but in the conference. And they certainly did that. Is it risky? Absolutely. They've pretty much mortgaged their whole future for these two players. Now, granted, one is coming off an NBA title and a player that right now, for argument's sake, will could be looked at or viewed at as one of the best players in the NBA, if not the best. And with Paul George as a sidekick, he's a guy that's come all the way back from that leg injury, certainly played on an MVP level for the first two-thirds of the season last year before the shoulder acted up. And unfortunately, although went down swinging in the first round of the postseason, but certainly did not push them to where they expected to go considering the record and considering what they did throughout the regular season in the Western Conference. And when you look at having both of those players, now they're two different players despite the fact that they play the same position. Now we know Leonard could be more of a guy who could be a point forward, same as Paul George for that matter. But you would think they're going to put either a combination of Paul George at the two with Kawhi Leonard at the three. They may even put Kawhi at times a power forward while they're going to put Paul George as a small forward, as a number three. And I never liked players who pretty much could play the same position. That's why I always thought that if Carmelo was going to play with LeBron, why was that ever going to be possible considering they both play the same position? Now, I understand they both have different skill sets and they're polar opposites, let's face it. But to me, if you're going to bring two small forwards on the same team who are pretty much alpha males, it's going to be, I would think, a difficult transition to try to mesh their talents into the lineup, which is similar to having like the Twin Towers, two big men. Like, how did that work out in NBA history? When you had, let's say, Hakeem Olajuwon and Ralph Sampson. And you could go down the list, even though it was successful for the time being, but even when Anthony Davis played with DeMarcus Cousins the first time in New Orleans. Had its moments, but at the same time, didn't really go too far. So this deal not only adds another wrinkle to having players on the chessboard move around and pretty much dictate where they want to go, but you kind of wonder what is going to be the next level because it's, it's, it, there are levels to this. When you look at what LeBron did, and we understand LeBron is a once-in-a-generation type player. We get that Jimmy Butler is not going to go on TV and announce where he's going to go. 
as well as you have a guy like Anthony Davis who a year and a, le- a year and a half left on his contract and his representation says, uh, yeah, we want to be traded to a contender because we feel like we could dictate where he could go. And guess what? In this league, that certainly happens. Even look at Kristaps Porzingis. Here's a guy who's shown flashes, but has done absolutely zero in this league. And what did he do? He pretty much forced his way out of New York. And New York was right for trading him to get the assets that they got back. And they don't have to deal with the headache anymore, not only just with him and his attitude, but his brother, who represents him, who seems to be more of a royal pain in the rear than Chris Tapps himself. And then now you have a situation where you have a free agent and he tells the team, I want this guy on this team, meaning you have to trade for Paul George. And we all know he signed that max contract before last year. So they had to make sure that all the money was right, whatever draft picks needed to be moved. And also in the process, let's not forget, Shea Gilgis-Alexander and Danilo Gallinari also were in part of this deal going to Oklahoma City as well as the draft picks. So when you looked at the Anthony Davis deal and you looked at Lonzo Ball, Brandon Ingram, Josh Hart, this pick, that pick, the fourth pick overall, uh, forget about it, your head was spinning. So imagine what this deal did. This deal reverberated throughout the league because of the complexity of not only signing Kawhi Leonard but having to trade for Paul George and what they had to give up in the process for this to all happen on the same day that the Lakers had to announce or finally introduce Anthony Davis. And to me, what's next? A player's going to have three years left on his deal and he's going to dictate where he goes? Well, wait a minute. There is a player that's maybe three, no, four years. And he now is part of an Oklahoma City rebuild that I'm sure he does not want to participate and be a part of, and that would be a one Russell Westbrook. Now, we'll get to what could possibly happen with that in a minute, but there's another great case in point where you may have a player, and I get it's only been 48 hours since this trade has been consummated, but you would have to think that right now, in the brain of Russell Westbrook, he's probably thinking, how do I get the hell out of here, and how long is it going to take? Because we all know he's making 170 some million dollars over the next four years. So whichever team he's going to go to, they have to have plenty of cap room. And not only that, but what assets are Oklahoma City going to get back in this process? Now, a lot of the talk has been maybe with the Rockets, trading him for Chris Paul. And then in essence, what the Thunder will do, they'll just release Chris Paul and then he could sign with the Lakers to play with LeBron, of course. That's one rumor or one story that you've heard. There's also the Miami Heat that may get involved. But the Miami Heat has given up plenty of picks throughout the course of the years as they're part of the Oklahoma City trade that the Clippers had received from a trade previously. So who knows how many or what kind of assets that they have to pull off this type of trade. Nick fans, I know one of my guys, Manny, he came out and said, hey, now the Knicks could go after Westbrook. That would be the worst thing the Knicks could do. And I get that the Knicks are like, hey, but we have cap room. Hey, but we have this. Well, guess what? You may have the cap room, and that's fine. But you're getting Westbrook at 30 years old. Your team is not going to win a title for another few years. You've been 
doing exactly what the Sixers have been doing as far as trusting the process without actually saying trust the process. So why would you bring on a guy who's not only going to make all this money, but it's not going to make your team better? Yeah, he's going to fill the seats, of course. He's going to bring box office, but then again, the Garden sells out anyway, no, no matter who's on the Knicks at this current moment. And for the Knicks to now all of a sudden trade away a lot of these assets and these chips that they've procured over the last six to eight months to now just go all in on Russell Westbrook, not going to happen. They'd be fools to do that. Let them be somebody else's headache. And I'm not trying to knock Russell Westbrook. We all know that he's a, he's a wonderful player. The motor is as high as we've ever seen in the NBA. But at the same time, there's no way that the Knicks, if they were that close to winning a title, then absolutely. But they are light years away from winning a title. And bringing Westbrook here is, what is that going to do? Get you an eight seed and then out in the first round, which has been typical of Russell Westbrook's career, minus Kevin Durant. So I think that would just be a bad move if the Knicks were even to think to attempt to bring a guy like Russell Westbrook into the fold. And I'm sure they're going to, the press is here, they're going to bring it up to Scott Perry and Steve Mills and say, hey, what do you think about it? And they're sure they're going to shut it down. And as they rightfully should. Because there are no way, there no way, shape, or form near any contention. Despite the fact that Kawhi now is on the Western Conference and Brooklyn isn't going to be 100% of the following year and the only two teams in the conference are Milwaukee and Philadelphia that you think are going to be the favorites to make it out of the East for next year's NBA final. So bringing in Westbrook, what is that going to do? Unless they are in the lab and they're going to bring back two players similar to what the Clippers just did, then I can't see it happening. So, Nick fans, you got to put that one to rest. But as far as where, where does Russell Westbrook go, that remains to be seen. I was trying to think of a team off the top of my head before recording this as to, to see where it can make it fit. And... I again, I couldn't even tell you because it's easy to come out and say, "Oh, you should go to Miami because Miami could use a point guard." And hey, why not fit them with Jimmy Butler and away they go. We got to understand what do they have as far as cap room? What do they have as far as assets to give up? Because that's going to be another trade where you're going to be, despite the fact you're going to be paying thirty-eight million dollars a year on average, but you're going to give up a ton in the process. And are the Heat that much closer to winning a title with Russell Westbrook on the team? I don't think so. So that's what you have there as far as Kawhi, the state of the league now, which thank goodness that he's not a Laker because going into this year, you have parity in the league. Well, at least parity in the sense where it's not going to be two or three teams that are going to win the title this year. I mentioned two in the East. Milwaukee and Philadelphia are going to be the favorites. I'm not even going to include Boston or even Brooklyn as of yet. Out West... We know Golden State is on hard times right now, not only losing Kevin Durant, but also Klay Thompson, as we all know. He's going to be on the shelf for most of the year. Although they bring in D'Angelo Russell, but how much of an impact he's going to make early on as far as blending in with his teammates and moving into a new building, etc. You figure, obviously the Lakers are going to be good. The Clippers are going to be good. Utah, they've certainly quietly built a good team here this offseason, and they feel like they're just a step or two away. What is Denver going to do? They did resign Jamal Murray to a big deal, but they still need a couple more pieces. I've actually thought about him maybe even going to Denver. 
now that I think about it, Russell Westbrook going there. Because he probably has as good a shot to win a title there than he would, whether it be in Houston, Miami, uh, or whatever other team you want to throw him on. Denver would be a good fit. Whether or not he wants to play there, who knows. But Denver has young players. Hey, if you want to flip Murray, I understand he, he just signed, what, five years for $170 million? These signing trades, they could certainly happen. But again, we'll see how uh, this whole Russell Westbrook thing shakes down because it's going to be intriguing to see, again, with this theme of the player empowerment and their movement and what they pretty much can do despite the fact that you have a big contract here with Westbrook. But I think that Sam Presti and company, they're going to do whatever it takes to try to get him out of here before the start of the season because his stock is at an all-time high. But you also got to wonder whether or not the player himself, Westbrook, may say, "Uh uh-uh, I want to go here. You're not going to trade me to Toronto. You're not going to trade me to a team I don't want to go to just so you could stockpile draft picks. I want to go here because I want to win. I'm 30 years old. I'm sure he feels like he's one of the top five players in the league. We understand he's a top five talent, but I'm sure he's going to dictate where he wants to go. And with all that money coming to him, it's going to be fascinating to see where he ends up. So we'll certainly continue to uh, keep our finger on the pulse with that situation. As far as other NBA moves, I know I mentioned Cousins with the one year and Rondo coming back. The Lakers making all those small deals. Even JaVale McGee comes back to Danny Green two for 30. I get it's only two years, but $30 million for Danny Green? Man, that's a lot of money. Shock there. So the Lakers certainly fortified their team. Uh, Other moves... I know, talking about Utah, Jeff Green and Emmanuel Moutier signed one-year deals. Green is a guy that bounced around. When his head is on straight, and I don't want to make it sound like that, he's a head case because he's not, but there are days when, when Jeff Green plays good, he plays very good. Evidenced by that Game 7 Eastern Conference Finals when he was a member of the Cavaliers against the Celtics last year. But then there's other games where more often than not, he just disappears. And Moutier, of course, we haven't seen him Blossom into his full potential when he came out of playing in that Europe League the year he was drafted. So who knows if he could kind of reset, get his footing, and see if he can make an impact there up in uh, Utah. Now, Golden State, of course, they re-signed Klay Thompson even with the ACL injury, which is to no surprise. They also bring in Willie Cauley-Stein from the Sacramento Kings as well as Kavon Looney as they re-signed. As a matter of fact, five, uh, what was it? Three years for $15 million, five-year million a year. I thought that was one of the biggest steals of the NBA free agent off-season period so far because Looney was a guy that we understand he's not a scorer. He's more of a glue guy. Defense, toughness, rebounding. But you would think he would have gotten a little bit more than just the hometown discount that he got. And good for him because I'm sure he wanted to be part of that fabric. He wanted to be part of that team, knowing that he's a pretty much valuable member of uh, uh, when you, and when you have a team that has Steph Curry, Clay Thompson, and even Draymond Green, which we know what type of presence he has on that team. Looney is a, another good guy to have there, who's also young, who will probably fill in the void for Andre Iguodala, who is now gone, as we all know, been traded to Memphis. So good signing there by the Golden State Warriors, and I just got to throw this in the mix. With uh, Joe Lacob and company. I get that you want to, I don't want to say appease, that's a strong word, but you want to honor Kevin Durant as he walks out the door. And we understand that he was an important cog 
in your machine over the last three years. But on the day after, not even 24 hours after he commits to sign with the Brooklyn Nets, do you have to come out and say that we're, he's no longer or no other player is going to ever wear number 35 forever? He was there three years. And I understand you're going to get the people in Toronto wanting to retire Kawhi's number, but that's a so, totally different story, and I'll get to that in a second. But for ownership, just to not only roll out the red carpet, but also throw rose petals, fireworks, confetti, and listen, I like Kevin Durant. I got nothing against him. I, he's a great player. He could play on my team any day of the week. But geez, just to, again, the ink's not even drawing a contract. And you're going to retire his number? I just thought it was a bit too much. I understand people would say, well, Jay Reels, who would you say that? But come on, three years? I mean, that's like, you you want to already retire somebody in Yankee land. You know, they retire numbers left and right. So somebody who's been there for three years, all of a sudden they're going to retire the number. I mean, give me a break. And that's how I feel in this case. Now, as far as Kawhi's concerned, to me, that's a little bit different. He won them a title. He had the biggest shot in the franchise's history in that game seven against Philadelphia. So you want to put that statue out there and retire his number, then it'd be unprecedented. But guess what? For an organization that never came close to winning a title, let alone sniffing in NBA finals, and for them to finally get it this year, even though he's out the door and with the Clippers, then by all means, feel free, do it. Knock yourself out. I don't have a problem with that. But for Durant, despite the fact two titles, two finals MVPs, and was putting up epic numbers this postseason before he got hurt, uh, for them to just say no one's ever going to wear that number again, uh, come on. You, you let it sit for more than 20 minutes? But anyway. So as far as uh, any other NBA free agent notes, I think got some minor signings. Isaiah Thomas, former Celtics, and also Laker bounced around Cleveland, Denver. He signed a one-year deal with Washington. And it's a shame. You kind of wonder where... I know it was a tough situation for Ains to trade him. That offseason where they brought in Kyrie. This was after his sister was murdered. And I'm a Celtic fan. And people know I wouldn't have signed him to a max deal. And here's the case why. We knew he had a bad hip. We know he's a small guy. He's not big in stature. If the Celtics would have signed him, let's just say, and he was, remember, he was a year away from free agency, so he wouldn't have gotten a Supermax despite the fact he was second-team All-NBA that year at the end of the 2016-2017 year. But if they signed him to a long-term, let's say, whatever, $140 million deal, they would still have three more years left in this deal with the injury history. It just would have been an awful contract. So I understand no loyalty. I understand that the front offices of these organizations, they do whatever they please, and that's why the players feel like they have the right to have all this empowerment to move on and to try to broker deals in the middle of contracts or before their contracts expire, et cetera, et cetera. I get all that. But uh, hopefully for Isaiah Thomas, he'll be able to get himself righted. Hopefully he's not going to get that nine-figure deal that I'm sure he was hoping and anticipating, but hopefully he'll latch on to another team after his one year in Washington and be able to get uh, a decent payday for the, the remainder of his career. And other one last note from the NBA. I know Zion Williamson, who has now been shut down for the rest of Summer League, which I know to the chagrin of a lot of people who probably bought tickets out in Vegas and want to see him perform. Well, he suffered a knee injury. It's not to be serious. They say a lot of it has to do with conditioning, and they certainly don't want to put any added stress 
and rightfully so, despite the fact that if people want to see him and want to see him perform and the legend of Zion has begun, well, guess what? They have to deal with their enormous asset and we know moving forward that the Pelicans, for everything that they've done, they know they want to cater to their number one prospect and I don't have a problem with it. I understand the people who flew out there or want to see him on NBA TV. I couldn't believe Friday night I'm running around the city and you know I'm trying to catch the last of the baseball, Yankees, Mets, etc. And what do I see? I see summer league games on these screens. Can you believe it? Summer league. I can't get into watching preseason football. I certainly won't watch exhibition baseball. And the last thing I'll even, even think to watch is summer league basketball. But it was on multiple screens throughout the course of my travels in Manhattan the other day. It was unbelievable. So that just shows the impact that the, not only the league has with these rookies and including Zion Williamson. So uh, that's what we have with the NBA. As far as, I'll turn my attention to baseball. I'll get into the NHL free agency a little bit later on. As far as the baseball is concerned, here we are at the, a little bit past the halfway point, depending on where you look at it. I know the Mets and Yankees have both played roughly 90 games. I know the Mets are 40 and 50. Yeah, big whoop. I'll get to them in a moment. The Yankees, on the other hand, you know, split with the Mets last week. The LeMahieu era pretty much opened the floodgates for the Mets to win that first game 4-2. And then even with the two-run first inning that they had was more than enough as they won 5-1 in that second game. And Gio Yershela put on a show defensively. And with that being said, why did he, on his home run, it took him like three hours to circle the bases. What was that about? It looked like he was hobbling. It looked like he was limping. Uh, and Gino Rochelle, I mean, are you pimping a home run? I mean, give me a break. I, I, I couldn't believe that. I was actually surprised that it took him that long. I th- he looked like he was hurt, too. He certainly didn't look like he was showboating, but it certainly made me scratch my head. Made me wonder, like, well, why was he doing that? Maybe he was trying to show up the Mets or the Mets fans. Who knows? But be that as it may, so the Yankees then went down to Florida. They split four games. No harm, no foul. All the games were close. Chapman blew the game on the 4th of July, but then they ended up scoring five runs in the 8th, propelled by the three-run homer by Gary Sanchez. On Friday night, they go into extras, and Aaron Judge hits his second home run of the game as they propel 8-4 win. Both of those games were 8-4, by the way. And then Saturday, even though CC was strong, but former friend for the Met fan, Travis Darno hits the walk-off game winner in the ninth. And then yesterday... It was 2-1 early. Gardner hits a home run in the second. Ray scored two in the first. Charlie Morton, 10 strikeouts as they split the series. No harm, no foul as they go ahead and get back their eight-and-a-half game cushion that the Yankees had. Well, they got back the two games at the back end. So they're at six-and-a-half heading into the All-Star break. And if you're the Yankees right now, As I said last week, and I'm going to say between now and the end of the month, the starting pitcher is what you're looking at, is what you're eyeing. Who is it going to be? Is it going to be Madison Bumgarner? Remains to be seen. Is it going to be more of a B or C level type? Whether that means Zach Wheeler, or you could take him off my hands right now. Please. Or who knows? But the fascinating thing is, is that the Yankees, as much as they need a starting pitcher, the crazy thing is, is that there's a lot of teams that are still in the mix, especially in the National League, that are still in the mix for a playoff spot. And the AL2, if you're going to look at the Texas Rangers of the world, 
you know, even Oakland for that matter. But if you're thinking about plucking a pitcher off of, let's say, a pirate staff or even the Reds, and Sonny Gray is now an all-star, can you imagine that? Now, mind you, I think he's filling in for somebody else. Somebody backed out, so Sonny Gray has been slotted as a uh, pitcher as a reserve for the uh, NL squad. But you wonder whether or not if the Yankees will be able to get their man. We know they have a tremendous amount of assets that they could trade to get that person, whomever it may be. It's not going to be Max Scherzer because now Washington is in the playoff mix in the National League, and we'll get to them in a minute. But moving forward, the two things I'm going to look at from the Yankee standpoint is, all right, are they going to get their pitcher? Do they even need that pitcher? I think they do. But come October, it's going to be all about the bullpenning, the bullpen and timely hitting, excuse me, as we well know. And then for the rest of this season, how it's going to play out for the Yankees, considering all the injuries that they've endured, everything that's happened. They have a six and a half game cushion. They do actually play Tampa for four, I believe, coming out of the break. They start with Toronto, and then Tampa comes in for four, and then Colorado. So they have a long homestand. They weren't able to put Tampa away as far as before the break. They could probably do so after the break. And the Red Sox will play a little bit better. But they're still nine games out. What will they continue to put the pedal to the metal? A, and then B, will they not let Tampa or the Red Sox get back in this race? And I don't think they will. I think they'll cruise to a division. So to me, it's just a matter of them staying healthy them getting the reinforcements in the starting pitcher, and once October comes, away we go. That's the second half of the Yankees. Get their health back or stay as healthy as they can be. Who's going to be in that rotation come August 1st? And let's the hunt for Red October begins. That's it. Other than that, I mean, what else could you say for the Yankees? They're in a great position. They should be fine in the AL East. Is Tampa going to make any moves? Which is going to be one of the storylines, one of the themes when I talk about the whole entire MLB landscape. But Yankees, they're in excellent shape. No ifs, bands, buts, maybes about it. As far as the Mets are concerned, obviously we talked about those Subway Series games. Then they had their off day on the 4th of July, which is ludicrous. Then Friday, they had the Phillies come to town where Jacob DeGrom, vintage Jake performance, but ends with a no decision. And then Edwin Diaz, who implodes once again. And Edwin Diaz, his ERA since the beginning of May is almost eight. Eight. Nobody in their right frame of mind would have ever even imagined that his ERA would have been close to that high. And I believe right now it's like a five-six. And that's all you need to know about the first half of the Met year is Edwin Diaz's ERA. Now, he got off to a tremendous start. If you heard me last week on the podcast, I talked about how he blew those two games against the Reds, not in safe situations, but in tie games, back-to-back home runs he gave up. And ever since then, he's just been awful. He's blown saves, given up home runs left and right. He's walked the ballpark, and he's been unreliable. And then, funny enough, that night, they had a situation where they actually could have taken the lead in a game, or they could have actually won the game early on in the seventh inning. They had a challenge where Mickey used earlier in the game, but the umpires couldn't overrule it, considering that once you get from the eighth inning on, then you could have the 
umpire's challenge where they go ahead and look at it, where Hoskins was out at the plate, but they called him safe, which ended up tying the game while Jake was in the game at that time. And then they tied the game, and in the ninth inning, they scored five runs. Not that it would have mattered because it would have been 2-1, and then Diaz would have still imploded as he did. But then after the game, as the New York Post reported, Brody Van Wagenen was so upset by that loss and upset that they weren't able, I guess, pull it off with Jacob DeGrom that he threw a chair, berated. Maybe that's a little bit too strong, but certainly had some uh, harsh words to say towards his manager and said, go do your effing press conference after his tirade. And all I have to say to that is, Brody, you're the one that brought in Edwin Diaz. That's your guy. That's your hallmark trade this offseason. How's it worked out? Don't be mad at Mickey Calloway, and we could talk about all of his shortcomings and transgressions from here to the cows come home. But at the same time, that was your trade. That was your deal. Ninth inning, game is tied. He comes in. Not only that, he implodes. He gives up the lead, but then he brings in Familia, and he adds more gasoline to the fire and brings tax on two more runs. So why are you upset at the manager for? Maybe he's upset at himself, but he wanted to point the finger somewhere. Who knows? And then Callaway in the post game, I believe on Saturday, said everything's fine with being the GM. All right. Uh, I guess we'll have to believe you, but if it just so happens that you end up getting, I don't think he's going to get fired before the end of the year. But let's say if he does, then maybe he's just blowing smoke up everybody's rear ends. Who knows? And speaking of the game Saturday, in which the Mets won, and Callaway showed a pulse because the story of that game was. Todd Frazier getting hit by Jake Arrieta. Both benches were warned. Frazier wasn't too happy. In the postgame, Arietta said, yeah, I'll put a dent in the skull, which, you know, Arietta's a tough guy. Let's face it. And then later on, he actually hits Ahmed Rosario. Doesn't get thrown out of the game. Remember, there was a warning. And it didn't look intentional, although it was inside. But then Mickey gets tossed, and rightfully so. He had to at that point. But the real story of this game is Noah Syndergaard again. And I have to bring him up because... I don't know what happened with him over the course of the last year. Plus, but this is not the same pitcher. Forget about him throwing 100 miles an hour. We get all that. And he hasn't even topped 100. He's been more like 98, 99, and that's fine. But what has happened to his stuff? What has happened to his dominance? This is a guy that people feared when he got into the batter's box because he threw 100 and he had the wicked slider and the off-speed stuff, the change, the curve, everything. Now he's six innings, 89 pitches. Well, I don't understand. And I understand early in the year, he came out with all the baseballs that feel like ice cubes, whatever. Okay, well, now it's 100 degrees. It's summer. What's the excuse? He's really regressed, and it's sad. Because this starting pitching, as we all know, is the strength of this team. But we can't even say that based on what he's done this year. Now, DeGrom is right the ship, so you got to give it up for him. That's fine. Zach Wheeler's another guy you could get out of town. He's been wildly inconsistent. Jason Vargas, I mean, give him credit. He actually hung in there against the Yankees after giving up those two runs, and he's a guy that I would certainly pawn off if you can right now. If you heard me on the podcast last week, you definitely got to hear what I have to say about that. And the three guys that you, and here's moving forward, here are my storylines for the Mets. And I know I'm going to sound like a broken record. Alonzo and McNeil to be healthy the rest of this year. And hopefully Alonzo doesn't pull a ribcage tonight at the home run derby because uh, that would just be, uh, I, I don't even want to know. 
as he's about to break not only the National League home run rookie record, but also the Met all-time regular season, you know, in-season rookie record or record period. Forget about rookie. He already broke that with Dallas Strawberry. And then he's going to try to see if he could tackle on the 52 home runs hit by Aaron Judge two years ago for the all-time rookie record. So you got Alonzo McNeil to look for the rest of this year. That's number one. Number two, I would trade Wheeler, Vargas, and Frazier right off the bat before the break. Oh, I'm sorry, before the deadline. Those are three guys that could go right now. That's not to say everybody else is untouchable. Of course not. In the right deal, You, if you're going to make a particular trade. But we all know these are trades that are just reinforcers for other teams. You're not going to make any blockbuster trade to bring in a guy at this stage of the game. No, 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 that's not happening. But if there are three guys that have any value right now, and Wheeler to me doesn't even have that much value, but I guess because you're renting him, that's why I mentioned the Yankees earlier. Who knows? Maybe he'll pitch in the Bronx. It'll never happen. They won't make that trade. But my point is, is that maybe you catch lightning in a bottle for the next two and a half months, and away you go. And Vargas could be a good three or four starter. Hey, maybe, who knows? The Twins, Texas, the Rangers. Remains to be seen. And that's all you have for the rest of this year. And of course, when is Mickey, if he does get fired, it may not be till the end of the season, but who knows? If the team continues to sink and fall fast, there are chances that the manager could go before October 1st. And that's what you got with the Mets. As far as baseball is concerned, the Nationals have certainly made a run at this thing. It's amazing. Uh, I'd have to go back to check what their low point was, but there were, there were almost 10 games on the 500. And now they've certainly righted the ship. Scherzer, who has been probably and arguably the MVP of the National League. I know you're going to say Kristen Yelich. I know you're going to say Cody Bellinger, but man, Scherzer has just been on a roll. And they are now five over in second place as they leapfrog the Phillies in the NL East. So you wonder if they're going to make any reinforcements to a bullpen that's just as bad as the Mets if you could even fathom that. But obviously they pitched a lot better over the course of the last six weeks. The Dodgers, again, are the class of baseball. The Central is just, please, you might as well put Chicago, Milwaukee, and St. Louis, their names in a hat, and whatever one, whichever one pulls up, and you can say, all right, I got St. Louis. They can win a division. Think about this. That division which had two teams make it into the playoffs last year. The Brewers winning 96 games and the Cubs winning 95. And they're both separated by a half game. Cubs 47-43, Milwaukee 47-44. And guess what? They're separated by three games in that division. So the Reds, although they're four and a half back, but they're actually three in a loss to the Cubs. That's why the Cubs, I'm sorry, the Reds, they may want to make a run at this thing. Chances are they may not, but if they're smart, hey, why not? Make a move. As far as the American League is concerned, you wonder if Minnesota is going to make a move. Minnesota's kind of hit the skids here as Cleveland is now just five and a loss. Remember, there were nine, there were as many as, off the top of my head, there were as many as 11 and a half games back. And now they're five and a half and five and a loss. So you wonder if the Twins are now starting to, I'm not going to say run out of gas here, it's way too early, but they're starting to lose a little steam. And Cleveland, if they could get their pitching in order and certainly get their team righted, they could certainly make a run at this. 
It's not out of the realm of possibility. We know the A's have played well as, as, as well as the Texas Rangers. Can they make a move here? Will Tampa do something? Will the Red Sox do something at a closer? To me, those are the all those things are going to be what's going to be intriguing here the second half of the year. Obviously, you're not going to worry about the dregs. The I mean, unless you want to say, hey, it's Baltimore. They're not going to push the 62 Mets for any stretch of imagination. But at the same time, do you think that they are going to win 55 games? And this is a team that I think lost 110 last year. So that's what you got. It's going to be a very intriguing next three weeks with this trade deadline. It's also going to be fascinating to see what's going to happen with these teams that are in contention from the small markets in particular. Are they going to make a move? Are they going to try to see if they can fortify their team to go up against the big dogs, whether the Yankees, whether it's the Astros, or even the Red Sox? And the Red Sox are on the outside looking in as far as the wild card is concerned. So we'll be sure to Keep our eye on it because baseball is to its full throttle right now because the NBA will start to die down a little bit, cool off as far as their news concerned. I know the NFL will start to ratchet up in a couple of weeks, but it's all baseball right here. And as far as the All-Star game is concerned, I could care less. I, I may watch two seconds of it only because there's going to be nothing else on the watch. And the home run derby, I just hope Alonzo doesn't get hurt. Do I want him to win? I could care less. I'm sorry. If he wins, great. But I just hope that he doesn't get winded and then hits four home runs the rest of the second half and we find out that he had a shoulder injury or a rib cage or whatever because of a stupid home run derby. So that's my take on that. Let's see, any, any other baseball news and notes before I move on? Baseball, baseball, baseball. No, that pretty much uh, does it. Oh, no, how can I forget this? The tragedy of Tyler Skaggs. I mean, and it was still unbeknownst as to what happened who knows if uh what the autopsy will reveal but that was just when you hear about that in season 27 years old survived by his wife you just find him dead in his hotel room that is just oh man it's as bad as it gets and the angels sadly they're familiar with this because 10 years prior they had the nick Aidenhart situation when he was killed in a tragic car accident drunk driver sped right through and Two other people in the car with him perished. Awful. And then here it is. It bites him in the rear end again with uh, another pitcher. Left-hander Tyler Skaggs. Dead at the age of 27. And just still looking for answers. Still don't know what happened for him to get to that point. And uh, just just a sad state of news there. And our hearts, thoughts, prayers still go out to the Skaggs family. Condolences, etc. And just, uh, again, a, a story that you certainly can't wrap your head around. Even if you tried. So that's what you have there with the baseball. Uh, Turn our attention to the NHL real quick. The NHL free agent frenzy, unlike the NBA, of course, but still you had a lot of moves that were made. And the Islanders, although they re-signed Anders Lee, 7 for 49, they were able to get a goalie with Robin Leonard going to Chicago, which that was tough. And supposedly that they actually, the Islanders had a deal on the table, a two-year deal, but for whatever the reason, Chicago swooped in with the one-year deal and pretty much gave him an answer right away. And once the two-year deal went up, Robin already made it, I guess he made a commitment, although he didn't sign on the dotted line, but said, hey, I'm going to go to Chicago. So who knows what the truth is there. But they did get uh, Semyon Volomov, who was a guy that uh, would backstopped 
Braden Holtby for many years in Washington. We'll see what he could do as far as playing out in the island is concerned. They also re-signed Thomas Kunakel. The Rangers got their man, which was a little bit of a tug of war between the Rangers and the Islanders. And the Rangers were offering more money, but he wanted to be an Islander. And that's Artemi Panarin or Panarin. I don't even know how to pronounce the guy's name. I know I butchered it last week, so forgive me to the hockey fan that's out there. So he's now the highest paid winger in the league. I believe seven years, $82 million. And he's a guy, 27 years old, was probably the top prize winger out in the market. And the Rangers usually get these type of guys. Going back to the days of Pavel Bure, Rick Nash, Martin St. Louis. I mean, go down the line. Now, St. Louis, I believe, was a deadline deal. But still, they always get these type of guys. Now, what does it mean as far as championships are concerned? No, they haven't, of course, been you know raised the cup in 25 years. But still, they always seem to get these guys. And the Islanders lose out. Now, what are the Islanders going to do? They, they definitely need another winger here. They, de- they need another scorer. As you saw what happened in these playoffs. We get Barzal. You get Jordan Eberle to a certain extent. Anders Lee, Brock Nelson. But they need a bonafide sniper. Lou's going to have to get a little creative to bring that guy in. But the Islanders have lost pieces. Valtteri Fupola, he goes back to Detroit. I talked about Robin Leonard. Matt Zuccarello, the former Ranger, now signs with the Minnesota Wild. Dallas made some big moves by signing uh, Joe Pavelski, the San Jose Sharks, who had been on there for been there forever, more than a decade. They also signed Corey Perry to see if they could catch lightning in a bottle with him, formerly of Anaheim. The Panthers have made some moves. They signed the former Columbus goalie Sergey Bobrovsky. Remember, Joel Quenville is now the coach down there, former Blackhawk coach. So they're going to try to do everything in their power to build up a good team to see if they can make a run at this thing in the East. And those are the big names there that have gone down in the NHL. And the Islanders, again, they're a team that always seems to be on the outside looking in when it comes to these free agents. And you only hope that they could get somebody because despite the fact that they progress big time and they play for defensive coach at Barry Trotz, at the end of the day, they do need goal scoring. And although they have players on the team that can put the puck in the net, but they don't have that bonafide guy. Rangers have their guy now. Where the Islanders going to find it? So that's something to keep in mind here in a couple of months leading up to camps that will open up in September. So hopefully Lou will have uh, pull a rabbit out of his hat and hopefully bring somebody onto this team who can score some goals. All right, and also now with Wimbledon, let me get to Coco Goff, who was the story of this tournament. She beat Venus on day one, 15 years old, the youngest player to win a match at a major event since Jennifer Capriati. Remember her? J-Cap back in the day, 1991. So when she beat Venus, and Venus is what, pushing 40, I don't want to say it was a passing of the torch to some degree because we all know Venus. Uh, certainly her best days are behind her. But with Coco Goff coming into the mix, 15 years old, based out of Florida, a lot of people were thinking, well, who's this girl? So then now she ends up winning her second round match and then a third round match. And then today she went up against Samola Halep, who was a former number one ranked woman overall. But she lost in straight sets today, 6-3, 6-2. I believe everybody was supporting her. I believes she was also nursing a little bit of an injury from what I read from some of the reports, but she was able to go back in 
actually had to take some sort of cortisone shot from what I read on one of the blogs here. But uh, she gave it a roll. It's a great ride. And I will say this. This, hopefully, will be a stepping stone for her, not only for the U.S. Open, which will take place at the end of August here in New York, but for not only just for women's tennis, but for U.S. tennis. Because, as I said a while back, I believe four podcasts ago when we talked about the French Open, how there is no U.S. presence as far as tennis is concerned. You don't have that one person. I understand you could say the Williams sisters to a certain degree, but again, they, you know, they're long in the tooth. Even Serena. Now, she's still dominant. She's still alive. In fact, she won in straight sets today, but they're not going to be able to do this forever. So hopefully, someone like Coco Goff at the tender age of 15, which you rarely see anymore. And 15, if you recall, back in the day, whether you were Jennifer Capriati, whether you're Gabriella Sabatini, whether you're Tracy Austin at 15, playing in all these tournaments, even Steffi Graf, a lot of these women were winning these tournaments at such a tender age. And you hadn't seen that for the last decade and a half. So then now to actually get somebody who is from this country, who now has a little gas in the tank, and you wonder if she'll be able to sustain this going on to the next major tournament, which will be in Queens next month. Hopefully I'll put some gas in the American tank to say, hey, we have somebody we can root for. We have somebody that we can hang our hat on. Instead of having to look at Serena's, uh, Serena or Venus Williams to help us and bail us out here. And again, listen, I'm not Mr. Tennis by any stretch of the imagination, but I followed enough to know that if there's going to be anything, something that we could wrap our arms around, whether it's on the men's side or the women's side, but it's even better on the women's side because at least with the men's side, although you have no U.S. players that are of anything to root for, but you still have Nadal, you still have Federer, you still have Novak Djokovic. In the women's side, other than the Venus and Serena, and I understand there's also good players too, I'm not going to knock, you know, I know uh, Naomi Osaka, she got bounced in the first round last week in her first match, which is a shame. Well, obviously she's not from this country. And you want to have that one person that you could certainly look at and say, hey, this is the future of tennis. Or, hey, this player, this person could hopefully bring back tennis in in the States to where we could see a domino effect where other, not only just, women's tennis players, but also men's tennis players could kind of be burst onto the scene and make a name for themselves. Because you haven't had that for years. And let's see if this will be the case. And hopefully she sustains that. So that's your deal with the Wimbledon right now. The men's looks like it's going to be a collision course between Federer and Nadal, and then of course Novak at the end. And we'll see if Serena, after winning in straight sets today, she could win another Wimbledon here. In 2019. Now my hero in zero of the week. Before we get to. My guest Gerald Brown. Hero of the week. Is the US women's soccer team. I mean how could they not be. They annihilated I believe it was a Thailand in the first match. 13 to nothing. And then they. Culminate that with a win yesterday against the Netherlands. 2-0. And what could you say. And funny enough, on a day where the men's team losing a Gold Cup to Mexico, the women's team win another World Cup. They'll have the parade up the Canyon of Heroes on Wednesday down in Lower Manhattan, and just a tremendous job. I mean, what could you say? 
for everything that they've done. They are the true heroes out in France, winning a Women's World Cup. So congratulations to them as they uh, bring the trophy home and the parade will be set for Wednesday morning. My zero of the week, this is a bit of a reach, but I'm going to pick on this guy anyway. I feel like I can. For those who follow, and I'm sure there's like two people out there that may even think about following this, but the whole Major League eating, and we saw what happened there, Coney Island on Thursday, Joey Chestnut, yeah, we know the whole deal, the hot dogs, etc. But to the chairman, George Shea, he's my zero of the week because this guy, I understand the filmmaker who did the good, the bad, and the hungry. I don't know if you watched it, the 30 for 30 last week, but he comes off as a major snake. And here's Takeru Kobayashi, a guy who, let's face it, built the Nathan's Hot Dog Eating Contest. We understand it's been a part of the American culture, the scene for many years, but he put that sucker on the map. And listen, I I don't know Takeru Kobayashi. I'm not part of his camp. I'm not a shill for him, but I do look at what he had accomplished and the guy is is just a machine. But with that being said, but George Shea, this guy comes off as just a snake in the grass. And how he treated Kobayashi and even to a certain extent how Chestnut treated him uh, was reprehensible. So now... And nobody would know who George Shea is if they fell on him. I understand that. But because I didn't really have anybody else to pick as a zero this week, I'm picking on this guy because here he is trying to put all these rules and regulations and pretty much block Kobayashi from doing other sanctioned events that weren't a part of the Major League Eating umbrella. Uh, It was just a disgrace. I mean, this guy has put this contest on his back and carried it. And all of a sudden you want to treat this guy as if he's Chop liver, that's a disgrace on your part. And I understand that's a probably a bad pick for my zero of the week, but if you watch the documentary, I'm sure it's streaming somewhere. Take a look at it, and then you'll see what I'm saying. So I'll probably come back with a better zero of the week, but boy, that guy was just, please. He should know better. He'd sell his own mother out, I think, just for the money or for a contest or for whatever it may be. So there you go. That's my zero of the week. All right, so now let's uh, transition to the guest. Again, my guy, Gerald Brown. Sirius XM NBA Radio, the bottom line sports show. Here in a couple of minutes, he's going to chime in on his thoughts of the NBA offseason. Now, mind you, two things. One, this was recorded, again, the day before the 4th of July, so I didn't get his take on Kawhi Leonard, so I'm actually going to edit that out because it doesn't make any sense as to where he's going to go because he already has a destination, and we already chronicled that and broke it down earlier in the podcast. That's number one. But number two, I had some technical uh, difficulty because he was traveling, uh, there are a couple of spots where being on a cell phone, there were a couple of pockets where he was cutting in and out. And unfortunately, in my very first question, the first 10 to 15 seconds were just muddled. And just to preface it, my question to start off was going back to the decision of 2010 and even 2016 with Kevin Durant. Did he find this offseason that much more intriguing, that much more interesting and fascinating than those previous two, which obviously were well ballyhooed? Well chronicled, well talked about. So I feel, me personally, that this one was ranks up there. So that was my first question. So it's just going to go right into the answer of that question. So enjoy my conversation with Gerald Brown. And we'll be back on the other side of that to close out. That what makes it bigger in some way, I'm really kind of on the fence. It's simply because... 
I think this year, you know, the NBA did a great job. They mirrored what the NFL has done in terms of their free agency announcements and, and just having that sort of, you know, uh, burst of all these signings and stuff. And what made this year unique, other than the LeBron years, the fact that the matter is guys that were second and third tier guys were able to sign. So, you know, it's, it's a situation where you can have a guy like a TJ McConnell be able to sign a deal. Daniel House, you know, the, the certain guys that really weren't held up because of waiting for Kawhi, KD, and all these other guys to decide where they go. So I think that the NBA really capitalized on it. And let's be honest, I, I really believe a lot of this stuff was really spearheaded by the NBA to sort of give the nudges to the team, the players, and the agents to say, hey, you know what, make a decision uh, on Sunday, 601, and you know, let's filter a lot of the deals in. So it's really good in terms of um, building the momentum. And then it's just like, you know what? It's been a great offseason for the NBA, you know, going from the finals, you know, the Raptors, and you go into the draft and all the oohs and ahs with that. And then, oh, by the way, we got free agency. And then, you know what? It carries us into, you know, the start of summer league and all this stuff. So the NBA has really, really capitalized in terms of, being the sort of number one sport that everybody is, is, is anticipating and talking about. And yet the fact is, is that with the Duran and Irvin deals, you know, that was stuff that was carried over for two days and stuff. So um, I think this year is, is unique and it's all right simply because the fact is the NBA looked at this and said, hey, listen, let's get in on this act and really control the narrative and what more importantly, you know, really capitalize on it and be able to make some money and sort of grow their grant to grow the game. Exactly. And the other thing is, you hit it on the head, is that uh, the T word tampering, of course, you know, there was a time and place where a lot of players uh, would be bandied about. And of course, you couldn't talk about certain things that would go off before July 1st. And now it almost is there's a little bit of a leeway or kind of a hush hush like, okay, well, if these deals are going to come out, and if, like, for instance, it was the worst kept secret that Kyrie was going to Brooklyn. Now, for reasons we didn't know until he published that video on his, I believe it was his Instagram feed. But still, it's one of those things where they kind of leak some of the stuff out early because it generates all the buzz, it generates all the hype. And therefore, you know, people don't have to worry about, oh, well, this one is talking to this team 48 hours too early, or this one, or this team is tampering with that one, or whatever it may be before the actual deadline. So you're right. I totally agree that it's been good for the game and good for the league. Despite the fact that there could be, uh, you know, just a little uh, tampering going on without the uh, actual word being thrown around. Yeah, I think it's always been there. I think the key thing is, is that, look, nobody's going to be able to stop if a agent meets with a team and, you know, it's done in a situation and a sense of secrecy and, you know, what it's really kept hush-hush. I mean, think about it. You know, Al Horford opts out of his deal with Boston and, you know, nobody knew about the mysterious team, which turns out to be the Philadelphia 76ers. Mm-hmm. And everybody was sort of held there. I think the biggest thing is the NBA has known about this and is saying, okay, listen, if you can't beat them, join them. Let's turn around and say, hey, look, you know what? We can't stop you guys from talking. But by the way, you know what? We're going to make some money off this and grow the game. You know, it's been so much excitement centered around that. And I think if most part, basketball, or baseball, excuse me, has been an afterthought. Oh, no, of course. And especially now, you know, the All-Star break coming up and we know baseball's a long season that everybody's just jonesing for a lot of this, uh, the NBA rumor mill and all the free agency stuff that uh, goes with it. 
So speaking of which, let's uh, talk about what's happening here right in our own backyard. If I had to ask you now 48 hours after the fact, are you more surprised that Katie and Kyrie signed with Brooklyn or are you more surprised that Katie and Kyrie didn't sign with the Knicks? I'm more surprised. I kind of, you know what? I think some of it, I think it's a little of both. And I mean, again, I'm sorry just to sit back and just say, hey, you can't really commit to one. But I think the narrative changed over the simple fact is, number one, when Katie got hurt, that really shelved, you know, a lot of things and shelved a lot of plans. Number two, I think that whomever goes to New York, there's going to be an innate uh, a sense of pressure. And, uh, you know, there's an innate, you know, it's like this, it's, it's, you know, a, an enormous amount of pressure that's going to be put on whomever goes there. And I don't know if Katie or Kyrie wanted that pressure. Uh, number two, I think that the tipping of all this stuff was when Kyrie decided to drop his longtime agent and mm-hmm. signs with Rock Nation. And Rock Nation, who has the connections with JC and the Brooklyn Nets, I think the handwriting was on the wall. So um, am I surprised somewhat? Am I surprised that they didn't do it with the Knicks? Well, yes, because I think that we have been able to know that the narrative has always been that this is a Knicks town, New York City. But I think the tide is turning. Um, there's a lot of backlash with a lot of fans. But think about it. If the Nets, if the Knicks do essentially what the Nets have done, maybe they could be in a different. You got a lot of young players, got players that really are short-term deals in regards to the Knicks that bring in, and everybody has something to play for. And if this is a Knicks team that you know is able to compete for a HC, a final playoff spot, that's great. And then if they're able to sneak into the playoffs next year or the year following year. Well, now they're potentially a team on the rise. But I think if you're looking at it right now, the Nets won the back page. And I think that that's what Brooklyn wanted to do. You know, I, I think it's so, you know, so uh, it's so funny because so much is focused on Kevin Durant and what he's done. And keep in mind, he's not going to play next year. Right. You know, that's the sort of belief that he won't play next year. But um, I am surprised and somewhat that they have basically teamed up in the direction that they're going. And, um, I'm just kind of surprised in terms of what the Knicks have been able to do, but I think Knicks fans have to be patient. That's the biggest thing. They have to, unfortunately, be patient. Right, and I think what they've done so far, I mean, they've signed a ton of free agents to short-term deals, but the thing is is that they do have to stick with what they're going through. They cannot be the team that thinks that they could just sell the Mecca as the garden and everything that uh, comes with it as a sticking point for players just to automatically flock to the garden. Obviously, that's not the case. I think what Scott Perry and Steve Mills have done so far, now granted, they haven't made the sexiest deals, and of course, they weren't going to go out there and go to a plan B, whether that be to try to contact Kawhi Leonard or, let's say, Tobias Harris even. They felt as if, well, if we get these guys on short-term deals to the point where we're not going to be hamstrung like they were the past, what is it, 20 years pretty much, uh, 18 years Uh after Patrick Ewing. So you would think that they're doing it the right way, although the Knicks fan, I'm sure, is frustrated. And I know the Knicks fan is looking across the river and saying, geez, you know, what could have been? But at the same time, just like you said, I agree with you. If as long as they stay the course, be patient, hopefully to get another top pick, I know, hey, could they push for an eight seed? We still have to wait and see how the rest of this offseason unfolds. But at the same time, I agree with you. As far as them just uh, staying the course and just trying to continue to pile assets and continue to try to develop these young players, that's what they need to do in order for them to sustain some long-term success. Yeah, I think the biggest thing is 
we have to keep in mind this is not your old Knicks because in yesteryear, keep in mind when they didn't get a guy like uh, LeBron James, they rushed and went and signed Amari Stoudemire, no matter what is. And they were saying, you know what? Listen, we just got to get a name in. They've stayed, of course. I think the only concern that I've had, you know, about them or had the biggest question is this decision to sign Alfred Payton and let a young man like Emmanuel Boudier go. Mm-hmm. When the fact of the matter is, yes, they're signing guys on short-term deals. It seems apparent that the Knicks are, at, you know, adamant about wanting to make sure that they have two players per position, you know, two deep at every position, and and, and just let them grow. You know, Julius Randle is on a deal where you still got guys on deals that still have something to prove. And I think that if, if you look at it from afar, the Nets are basically, the Knicks can mirror what the Nets have done. And just basically, you know what, if people will be patient and allow them to be able to do what they need to do, I think some will pan out, and, you know, who knows? There might be a free agent out there that might decide to say, hey, I want to come to New York just because of the culture, just because of the fact that's the way they've been playing. But, um, you know, obviously, like I said before, Brooklyn succeeded in winning the back page of the sport. Oh, without question. And one other thing about the Knicks, too. Do you feel as if some of the players will just take this free agency class, for instance? Do you look at them and feel as if they didn't go to the Knicks because, A, they looked at that roster and said, there's no way that I'm going to be anywhere near title in the next, let's say, three to four years? Or do you think the presence of James Dolan and everything that's happened over the years, especially from the Knicks side of things, that also deterred them from coming to the Garden? You know what? I'm not buying into all that because I think at the end of the day, if somebody was offered an enormous amount of money, they would have gone there. I just think the fact of the matter is, Jason, to win and play in New York, you know, first of all, to play in New York and to try to win in New York, there's an enormous amount of pressure. And unfortunately, I don't think that there's a lot of players that are willing to accept that responsibility. Like the biggest thing that I think has been the thing that's really have less my have have less has left me with a question mark is you look at a guy like Jimmy Butler. Mm-hmm. Now, Jimmy Butler has basically said, Hey, he wants to compete for a championship. Uh the whole usual suspect line in terms of seeing guys wanting to go on to bigger and better things. But the main thing is they want to compete for a championship. He decides to leave. First of all, he gets traded out of Chicago because they weren't going to offer him the max. He goes to Minnesota and really runs roughshod with that young franchise, goes to Philadelphia, plays enormously well. He's set up to get $190 million for five years, but yet he wants to go. And I'm sorry, is a car coming by. <laughs> That's all right. He, he decides to go to... <laughs> Miami for four years, $141 million or whatever it is. And when I saw that move, I said immediately, okay, he just doesn't want the pressure. He wants to be a good player on a bad team where making the playoffs is the expectation and that's it. You left an enormous amount of money on the table, $190 million. So I, I think when it comes to the Knicks, there's so much pressure for guys to win that it can be a lot. And the thing is, maybe some of these guys just don't want that responsibility. It's possible. You know, unlike the previous era, if it was a guy, let's say, uh, I'm just going to throw his name out and not to say that he was going to ever come to the Knicks, but right, if you had a guy that knew, let's say, whether it be a Michael Jordan type or someone of that ilk, where they knew that if they certainly wanted to have a legacy or certainly wanted to put their 
you know, stamp their seal of approval with this town by winning a championship, they relish the fact they're coming here. They figure that, hey, it's New York, it's the Garden, it's Madison Avenue, it's everything that comes with it. But right, this day and age, this, that player's not into that because they're into the, either their own brands or they're into you know a super team, things of that nature, which is fine. And that's, hey, that's their prerogative. But I agree with you on that point because a lot of these players certainly don't want to look at, as much as they want the bright lights, and the big stage at the same time, knowing that coming here, a city that hasn't won a title in 46 years, that uh-uh, I'm sure that's something that they uh, don't want to tackle on head first. No, not at all. And I think that, you know what, the players are changing. And I just hope for the fans, you know, maybe fans um, and in New York that they basically do not jump on this theory of Giannis. We can go after Giannis. Exactly. I don't think that Giannis will leave the supermax money that he will be offered to come in New York. So I'm just hoping that fans stay patient. It is a knee jerk reaction, but you know what? You just got to sit back and say, Hey, look, you know, it just didn't work out. And I think it's a good situation. You know, we don't know how things may turn out for the Brooklyn Nets in terms of, you know, you know, how, if Durant is able to come back, I think that the biggest thing is, look, they won the back page. People are going to sell tickets. They're going to have people come out and watch them play. But the question will remain, how much better does a Durant? And the thing is, he's only under a four-year deal. So, theoretically, he's going to take next year off. He's going to probably take a year and a half. We've been watching guys that have had Achilles injury returning, i.e. DeMarcus Cousins. Mm -hmm. He might take a year and a half or two to come back. So, you essentially get him for one year before he opts out for another deal. And at that point in time in his career, he finally say, well, look, I'll wait for Washington to figure out what they're doing, and then I'm going home. Or what better narrative would be for a guy like Kevin Durant to be able to control and worry about his legacy to say, hey, I would love to close out my career where it all began in Oklahoma City. Right. Or even if a team happens to pop up in Seattle, who knows? Imagine if that were to take, you know. Exactly. That, that you know? Be- so <laughs> it, it, it's great now. I think it's great for the fan base of Brooklyn uh, and the Nets. And then now the question is, how much better are they going to be? I think they have a young team. You know, things are just fell into place for them. But I think the key thing is for the Nets, uh, for the Knicks fans, it's not all that bad. No, definitely not. And then one thing with Brooklyn, because obviously we could talk about the the Knicks forever. Same with the Nets with this deal, because obviously this changes the everything about this franchise. We all know living it other than the few Jason Kidd years, and I'm not going to go back to the ABA Nets, but at the same time, you know, they had just a mild success there in the early 2000s. And, yeah, they had that little run with uh, KG and Paul Pierce for uh, they just only won one playoff round. But now that they have these two guys in the fold, really the one guy, Kyrie, and then, of course, when KD comes in. But my thing is, is that Kyrie now has to be on his best behavior here. Everything that happened in Boston, and we certainly don't need to rehash everything that transpired there. But you would think that he's going to be the leader of this team minus Durant until he comes back into the fold. My thing is, he's coming into a situation that's similar to Boston. A lot of young guys, I understand they signed Wilson Chandler, who's uh, you know a guy, of course, been in the league quite some time, but certainly not going to be that uh, presence in the locker room as far as leadership is concerned. So I kind of wonder you know, what this experiment's going to be like year one. I'm sure on his best behavior, but I would think that a lot of these, uh, a lot of, well, a lot of what's going to happen this coming year, I'm sure people are going to be on next shows wondering if the uh, old Kyrie from Boston last year is going to re- rear his ugly head. Yeah, I think the biggest thing is is that let's look at it for, for what it's worth. I think that whole situation in terms of Boston last year was a very, very unique and difficult situation on all fronts. Think about it this way. 
they go to the Eastern Conference Finals Game 7 without a Kyrie Irving, without a Gordon Hayward. And you have the emerging players of a Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown really, really step up and really take the, you know, take the bull by the horns, if you will, and really make this push. And now you come back and do the next season, this past season, and now the question becomes, how do you really sort of scale back the development of young players that really, really got an opportunity, if you will, to get opportunities to get more exposure and experience on the court, and they were really a focal point of that Boston offense. Now you bring back into the mix a Kyrie Irving, who's really ball-dominant, a guy that's looking to do different things. And, oh, by the way, you bring Gordon Hayward back into the, uh, the fold. So I think it was just a very difficult thing with that team to find a level of consistency where they would be able to understand and identify guys accepting their roles. I mean, you heard Terry Rozier. He was a little frustrated because everybody's role changed. Yep. Once Gordon and Kyrie went out, and you got to remember, Gordon Hayward goes out the first game of the season. Kyrie Irving is gone, you know, and then now all of a sudden, the worst thing that could have ever happened to them is that they had this enormous amount of success. So, if anything, yeah, you know, Kyrie Irving can be blamed for some of that stuff, but I think there's so much that goes around. And I don't know if you will see the same thing in Brooklyn because I don't think that you have guys, if you will, that were quote-unquote established, you know, uh, Spencer Dinwiddie, Karis LeVert, very good young players. But I think that these are guys that are still young in their careers that could be able to understand the magnitude of getting a guy like Kyrie Irving and how much pressure it takes off of them. So I think it's going to be a very, very different situation in, in Brooklyn as opposed to Boston. Oh, hey, obviously we'll see what happens, but that was a good assessment, Gerard. I, uh, I could, would love to see that. I mean, listen, obviously I had to deal with, uh, as a Celtic fan, deal with that last year, especially with how everything fizzled out in that Buck series. Not that they're going to win the series, but, you know, the way he performed. And uh, now that he's going to be close to home, this is the team he grew up uh, watching and rooting for. And, you, hey, listen, I'm not trying to wish him uh, terrible success, but at the same time, I just hope that whatever he learned and whatever he had to deal with in this last year, that it translate translates to a winner, especially in Brooklyn, considering that it's been a Nick town, despite the fact that they've been, you know, championship list for 46 years plus. Yeah. And I think that a lot of that really, he became kind of quote unquote, the scapegoat, which is unfortunate because the fact is, Hey, would people have reacted if he wasn't in a walk year? Would people have reacted the way media would have sort of pointed the finger at him and feeling like he had one foot in and one foot out. If would have already had signed an extension deal during the course of the season. I think a lot of that stuff would have been all but forgotten. But um, because of the situation that he was in, listen, he was the most recognizable name. He was a franchise player, so he's going to assume a lot of responsibility and a lot of the blame. But I think some of that stuff can go all the way around. And I just think that they were a team that was struggling to have consistency associated with them last year. No, absolutely. And uh, all right, so a couple of quickies I'll throw at you because uh, I know you're pressed for time. So, and I appreciate you uh, joining me here just a few days after all the Anytime, media. man. Anytime. <laughs> no, thanks, my man. Uh, the as far as all the deals that have, uh, and I'm not going to go team by team, but what was the one deal that you liked that either not necessarily from a contract perspective, but just from a uh, culture standpoint, was there one deal that really stuck out that you thought that wow, this team or this player could certainly put this team either over the top or certainly to the uh, NBA Finals. 
Well, I, 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 you know, I like what Milwaukee has done. I think, you know, Milwaukee, you say Philadelphia, adding a guy like Al Horford, uh, I think that's great to help that for that front line. But the thing about it with Philly is, okay, how do you replace a J.J. Redick? You know, they're still waiting and stuff like that. You got Tobias Harris. But you need perimeter scoring. I like what Milwaukee has done, you know. They're kind of a head-scratcher. They let Malcolm Brogdon go. But I think the thing about it was, listen, we're not going to pay him that enormous amount of money. You got a lot of value in a guy like George Hill. You reset Rob, uh, Brooke Lopez. You bring in his brother, Robin, to fortify that bench. You know, what you didn't get from the trade when you had Powell in the mix. And then you also bring in a guy like Wesley Matthews, who played basketball at Marquette University. So, uh, you know, a guy that's on a one-year deal that's got something to play for, and you re-sign Chris Middleton. So the, the pieces are there, you know, if you can still have the development of guys like a Pat Connington and some of these other young players. I like what John Horst, the general manager of the Milwaukee Bucks, has done in terms of continuing to add value to that Milwaukee Bucks franchise that quietly could be really maybe the sleeper coming out of that Eastern Conference, especially if a guy like uh, Kawhi Leonard doesn't go back. But I think still in all, they still have a shot at perhaps being that sort of uh, team that comes out of the East, regardless if a guy like Kawhi comes back to Toronto. And what about the one deal that made you scratch your head, that made you think that, wow, they gave him too much money, A, and B, that why would that player even make a reach for a player like that? I hate to say it, but Ricky Rubio, three years, $51 million, and I know last year was an op year, and you know what team had said? I just, I was surprised about that. Listen, I'm always for every guy getting their money, but I'm trying to figure out the direction that the Phoenix Suns are going. And granted, there was one point in time they had seven point guards. Now, all of a sudden, they're, they're down to none, and now they're struggling. But to give a guy like Ricky Rubio, um, I, you know, three years, $51 million, I was very, very surprised. And I think that they overspent in the value in terms of signing a Ricky Rubio. So that was one of those deals that was like, wow, uh, you know, congratulations to him and his agent. God bless him. But that was one of those deals that, you know, was definitely a head scratcher. Much appreciated here on the eve of uh, the 4th of July weekend. Uh, many thanks, my man, and uh, I'm sure we'll talk down the road. So, uh, once again, I appreciate you uh, taking out a few minutes to uh, discuss the NBA landscape. Hey, Jason, anytime. Thank you so much for having me on. And, look, man, anytime you need me, I'm always available. I appreciate you. Oh, I appreciate you too, man. Thanks a lot. All right, I want to thank Gerald Brown, Sirius XM NBA Radio, the Bottom Line Sports Show, for joining me. He's always a good spot. Always glad to have him on. And as always, people, please, your participation, it counts. It's huge. It's enormous. If you could just go to wherever you sign up for your podcast, whether it's on Apple, Google, Spreaker, Stitcher, Spotify, Luminary, wherever it may be, please feel free to post a rating, leave a review, all that, because all that's going to do is just spike up interest with all the other sports podcasts that are out there, and hopefully that will generate not only just the interest, but also uh, a cavalcade of people to come not only to the website at jreels.com, but also to populate and to push a lot of traffic toward this podcast as I independently produce, edit, host, write, etc. There's a one-man operation as I'm trying to do it all in one shot. And again, if you could just go ahead and do that, show your love, on any of those platforms, I would uh, greatly appreciate it. 
And you could also hit me up if you want with any questions, comments, criticism, praise, whatever it may be on any of my social media accounts, whether it's J Reels on Instagram, the J Reels podcast on my Facebook page, J Reels One, just the number on Twitter. And of course, you could send me an email at the J Reels podcast at gmail.com. Here each and every week to bring you everything that's happening in the world of sports. My pleasure, my passion to deliver. What's going on in the world of the diamond, the world of the ice, the world of the hardwood, gridiron, golf course, racetrack, tennis court, you name it. From my lips to your ears, from my heart to your soul, from where I am to wherever you are, the J. Rose Podcast always comes correct, directed, and in full effect. From the South Bronx, the South Beach, the South Central, the South Pacific, and all points beyond, peace, love, and God bless everybody. And until next time on the J. Rose Podcast, on the flip, baby. <laughs>